Let me again welcome Grace Community Church to our congregation. It was a joy when I heard from Ryan Friday and then Dustin Saturday that there was the possibility that y'all would be worshiping with us today. It's amazing how God in His providence brings things about. Uh, As our paths crossed together back in the summer and how the Lord worked all things out to where we would move from uh, Ridgewood to Castlewoods and where y'all will eventually move there. Uh, The Lord is good. The Lord is sovereign. And we are so thankful in how he has orchestrated things for y'all as well as for us. Uh, One of the greatest blessings, of course, is the privilege of getting to meet your pastors, Ryan and Dustin. Uh, They have become brothers in Christ, and I thank them for what they mean to me. And uh, we look forward to our relationship even growing stronger in future years. But we're glad to have your members here. Uh, I was thinking just a moment ago, should we divide the offering since it was taken up this morning? <laughs> no, but uh, one thing I would love to see, though, uh, all of you stay and eat. I just want to see if we have enough food. You know, Jesus fed the 5,000. <laughs> and of all Sundays, we have breakfast food this morning. Uh, we don't do that but about once a year. And for some reason, it fell on this Sunday. Uh, so if you enjoy breakfast food... Stay with us and uh, enjoy a meal together. Before we uh, begin, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do stand amazed at how great you are, how sovereign you are, and how you work all things according to your purpose to bring your people together to worship you in truth and spirit. We thank you that you have had mercy on us, for we know that we are sinners in need of grace each and every day. We thank you that we can come to Christ knowing that if we confess our sins, that he is just and righteous to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We pray, Father, that as we come to this time to open up your word and study it, that our minds would be focused upon your truth. We pray, Father, that your spirit would come. For we know that all is vain unless your spirit comes to teach us that which we need to know. We pray, Father, that your spirit would work in our midst. We pray for those that are unconverted. How we pray that your spirit would change their heart so that they might receive the truth. Open their eyes, unstop their ears. We pray, Father, for your children that you would grow them in sanctification. Teach them truth so that they might grow in the likeness of Christ, as well as using that which they come to know to share with others. We pray, Father, that you would bless our time together, that we would truly worship you who is the great I Am. We pray that we would understand even more of who Christ is as we study this passage this morning, and that we would glory in Christ. We pray for those that are unable to be with us this day, Father. You know the reasons and their needs, and we pray that you would minister to them and that you would bring them back to us. We pray for those, Father, who are having issues with the flood, and we pray that you would protect them and protect their possessions. And, Father, that you would even use this flood to remind us of the great flood that took place that destroyed all the earth 
and all the people except for Noah and his family. Every time a flood comes, Father, calls us to remember that judgment day is coming and that today is the day of salvation. We pray for our sister churches throughout the world, Father, as the gospel is proclaimed in them, that many would come to know Christ this day, that your kingdom would be extended. And we thank you in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 12. We are preaching through the gospel of Mark, and we have made it so far up to chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 35. Then Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David himself called him Lord. How is he then the son? And the common people heard him gladly. For those of our church, you know where we are, what has been taking place. But those that are not here every Sunday do not know that. So let me give you a brief summary of where we are. Jesus has entered into Jerusalem by the triumphant entry. And he has cursed the fig tree for not bearing fruit. He has gone into the temple and cleansed the temple. He has returned to the temple again and he has been asked question after question after question by three different groups. And he has, of course, answered all of these questions perfectly. Now it comes time for Jesus to do a little questioning himself of the religious leaders of that day. And he does something a little bit different from his normal teaching style. He puts forth a couple of questions to challenge these so-called scholars. As we saw last week, the scribes were the scholars. They were one with your PhD. They were the doctorates. So he is challenging them. And we see that he is talking about his own identity that involves the most important question that could ever be asked. And that question is, who do you say that I am? Now, this question has already been discussed earlier in chapter 8 when Jesus asked the disciples there in Caesarea Philippi when he says, who do people say I am? And of course, we know Peter answered that question quite correctly. And we see again that this is brought to our attention. Now, historically... We know that the Jews viewed the Messiah as a mere man, one who would rule earthly like King David. He would be unparalleled in power and influence. He would conquer the Israel's army, the enemies, I mean, and usher in the promises that were extended to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on. So this is what they were looking for. They were looking for an earthly king like David, a savior of the nation, not a savior of the people. It was all political. But they didn't see that they needed a savior from their sins. They didn't understand that. They did not believe that the Messiah would be God in flesh. 
Their mindset was upon worldly things, upon worldly prosperity, upon a worldly kingdom. They did not understand the spirituality of the kingdom. They had asked, by what authority do you do these things? Indicating that they did not believe that Jesus had authority. They did not believe that He was even the earthly Messiah. Despite all that He had said, Despite all the miracles that he had done, they still did not believe that he was even this earthly Messiah. And they rejected him from the very beginning. That is, the religious leaders. I'm not talking about the normal people. I'm talking about the religious leaders. They hated him. And one of the reasons they hated him, because he exposed their hypocrisy and their lack of knowledge of the Word of God. They were the doctorates. But yet they didn't even know God's word. And that's what Jesus is challenging them here on this particular occasion. They also hated him because they believed that he was a blasphemer. Because he claimed to be the son of God. God incarnate. Able to save sinners from their sin. Able to forgive sin. And bring about spiritual salvation. Now desperate to eliminate him. We see, or we have seen, that the Sanhedrin has sent these different groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the uh, Herodians, the scribes, all of them to ask questions of Jesus, seeking to humiliate Him, seeking to trap Him, seeking to destroy Him so He would fail and they could discredit Him. But they couldn't do it. He answered all of the questions perfectly. So now Jesus turns the table on them and He poses questions to them which we see that they are unable to answer due to their spiritual blindness. So Jesus carries on this conversation with these spiritual leaders and He focuses on His identity as the Messiah. Now Jesus hasn't done this very often Like I mentioned earlier, he did it there with the disciples in uh, Caesarea Philippi. But yet now it was time for him to do it. Because now his days were numbered as far as the crucifixion coming. And Jesus is more or less saying to them, let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought about this? Now it appears that the common Jewish people relished in the silence of the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees and the priests and the teachers of the law and, and the Sadducees who all pretended to be busy with their own thoughts. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he had this particular effect on others. He was good at silencing people. He was good at silencing especially religious people. Even those who possessed demons, he was able to silence. Now, this question Jesus asked reveals how little these scholars knew about the Bible. He reveals that they really and truly did not understand the Bible. They did not understand the Messiah. Now, it's sad that much hasn't changed with respect to knowing the Bible. Many men do not rightly teach the Word of God today, sadly to say. 
Many men today are standing behind a pulpit, but yet they're not teaching the Word of God. And that's the reason why the people that sit in the pews are so ignorant. Unless the man preaches the Word of God, how are the people going to be fed? And it's sad that that happens in our day today. It's sad that people are starving for spiritual food and they're not receiving it. I mean, this is one of the most important truths pertaining to a pastor, an elder. He must know God's Word. He must be apt to teach. Because man's eternity depends upon it. But also, man must understand what his obligation is. Every Christian must understand what it means to walk in the Spirit. To know the Word of God. We are all called to do what? Make disciples. That's not only my job as pastor or your pastor's job. It's all of our jobs to make disciples. As we go into the world, we are to be making disciples. Now, if you don't know how to make a disciple, how are you going to make a disciple? Whose responsibility is it to teach you how to make a disciple? Well, it's your pastor's responsibility. It's the elder's responsibility to teach you how to make the disciples, and then you are to go and make disciples with them. But all of us must have a certain amount of knowledge about the Bible. We must study the Bible. We must spend time in the Word of God. Now, you don't have the same privilege that your pastors have as far as studying the Word of God. That's our calling. That's our full-time, quote, job. And we get paid for it. Isn't that wonderful? You don't get paid for it. In other words, you have to study the Word of God for nothing. Well, I mean nothing salary-wise, but you benefit from it spiritually. So you're to be studying the Word of God daily so that you might be able to use the Word of God to make disciples. Now, just like Jesus is day, there are a lot of people who have a lot of errors pertaining to God's Word. And these religious leaders had a lot of errors in their mindset. They did not know God's Word. You know, as, as we've made this transition, one of the things I'm trying to do is weed out books. I've got about five boxes of books sitting outside the office, and I haven't even got a fourth way through. Books that I've collected over the years, I'm thinking to myself, why have I collected these books? I know... Um, I think it's Mark Dever. He has a chef in his office. Uh, heresy, do not read. In other words, it's just for our study. And, and it's good to put that on some shelves and those books on that shelf so the people don't come in and say, well, look at what my pastor's reading. Some of the books that I found on the shelves, I sure hope that the previous pastor wasn't reading those books. I think the same way. Maybe it was heresy as well. But we have to be wise as far as what we read and what we study. And if you don't know what to read and what to study, then go to your elders and your pastors and ask them, is this a good person to be reading? Because there's a lot of people out there that are not good. Don't read them. There's a lot of people on TV that are not good. Don't listen to them. If you want to find out about them, go go again, ask your pastor. He'll tell you about them. But stay away from them. Now, The passage that Jesus uses here to identify himself was read in our Old Testament reading this morning, Psalms 110. The teachers of the law knew that this psalm proved that the Messiah, and when I say Messiah, also the word you can use, Christ, interchangeably there, 
And sometimes I will do that in the message, so don't get confused. If I say Messiah or Christ, they're the same thing, would be the son of David. But that is all that they saw. They didn't understand much more about it. But Jesus is about to reveal to them so much more from this particular Psalms, from Psalms 110. And he's about to reveal that these scribes, these doctors, were ignorant. And they had ignored the truth. And their ignorance had distorted the uniqueness of the message of Psalms 110. So much in the Word of God that we need to digest, understand, realize. And again, it's the pastor's responsibility to teach that to his people. And let me also say, a pastor can't do that in 20 minutes. Now you're laughing, some of you, because last Sunday I broke my record. I know that. Richard reminded me right out of church. I broke my record. I went 70 minutes. But that included my prayer and that included some other things. So you can't say 70 minutes. Now this morning I'm not going to go 70 minutes. Now y'all's pastor probably preaches that long too, don't they? Shake your head this way, right? (laughs) But what I'm saying, when you go to school, you sit in a classroom for 55 minutes. If you go to seminary, some days you sit in there all day long, right? How? You had a class recently. You were sitting there from, what, lunchtime till 5 in the evening, 4 hours. So in other words, we need to sit and listen to the Word of God because you're going to be in the world all week long bombarded by the devil and you need to have your tank filled so that you can go to war, spiritual war. So Jesus is revealing to these religious leaders as well as the normal average Jew the uniqueness of Psalms 110. The extraordinary truth was exchanged for a deluded message by these religious leaders. The scribes assured the people that the Messiah was going to come. So he was more or less saying, look, you need to all be good. You need to be prepared because the Messiah is going to come. He's going to come as a king like David. And they used the message to encourage the people, to keep them positive, because they were under the bondage of Rome. And he told them that the Messiah would come and deliver them from their enemy, who, of course, at that time was Rome. And when he comes, he will have the house, or he will be from the house of David, and he will be great, and he will rule, and he will drive out the Romans. The teachers used Scripture for their own benefit, for their own political power over the people. So that's where we are. Now, that's my introduction, so let's get to the sermon now. These, this short passage, first of all, don't mean it's a short sermon, but I'm not going 70 minutes, I promise you that, Lord willing. We see how significant these verses that come straight from Psalms 110 are for them as well as for us in our day and time. Now... First of all, we see that the Messiah, the Christ, is none other than David's Lord. And there's four short truths that I want you to see about David's Lord. So if you're keeping notes, this is first. 
that the Messiah is none other than David's Lord. And the first truth under that is that when David called the Messiah Lord, what does he mean? Well, first of all, he means ownership. That David is the Lord. The Lord owned David. The king is saying that he is completely submissive to the Lord. That he belongs to the Messiah. I'm his and I'm his forever. This Lord has absolute dominion over King David without any restraints whatsoever. Now that's how we all come to Christ. We don't come to Christ making deals. We come to Christ surrendering our all. You know, there was a teaching years ago, and it's still prevalent today, to where they say you can accept Christ as your Savior and later as Lord. Well, you know that's not true if you read the Bible. If you're reading comic books, it might be true. But if you're reading the Bible, it's not true. We know that when you come to Christ, you come to Him as Lord. And David is saying, I will be the Messiah's servant in exactly the same manner I am God's servant. I will be totally obedient, loving, in submission. No matter what He requires of me, I will do it. Second, David would submit to Messiah's teaching. He would be the greatest of all prophets and all teachers. The Gospels tell us that they said, Never did a man speak like this. And the crowd said, The people were astonished at his teaching. Thirdly, David was under the authority of the Messiah. He was king of Israel, but the Messiah will reign over him and will reign over the entire world. All of the world is under his control. All authority in heaven and earth is given to him. The Messiah possesses authority over all flesh. And he would sit at his father's right hand in glory. And his headship would be over the entire church. He would rule over all principalities, over all spiritual powers. All would be under him. Even the devil and his demons must obey his words. And we see that in the gospel. He tells them to be quiet and they're quiet. He tells them to be gone. Remember, they were in the demonic man. Remember when we studied that a number of chapters back in chapter 5? And he told them to be gone. And they said, don't cast us into the bits. And where did he cast them? He cast them into the pigs. And they committed suicide. They obeyed him. And we see also that he said to Peter... When Peter allowed Satan to fill his mind, Get thee behind me, Satan. All nations would bow before him in humility. And then fourth, the Messiah's lordship means his divinity. The Lord said to my Lord. Now the same word is used both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, even though one is Hebrew and one is Greek. In the Old Testament, we know Adam 
And then in the New Testament, in the Greek, we have kurios. The same title is given to him. All belongs to David's God, belongs to David's Messiah. He's not only a man of David's lineage, but he is David's Lord. He is Yahweh Davison. Now, this name, David says, bow to before which all sinners must bow. And this one who would crush the head of the serpent would take our nature, share our experience, and bear our sin. And the only hope David had for the forgiveness of his heinous sin was his hope in Christ and Christ alone. He knew that there was no forgiveness except in Christ. So he looked to the Messiah and he says, My Lord, Now, Jesus says to those there in the temple, David calls him Lord. In other words, David ascribes to the Messiah one of the greatest divine titles in the Old Testament. He's the God whose name is Yahweh. So he's the fullness of the Godhead. In him we discover all of God's attributes. He's eternal. He's omnipresent. He's unchangeable. He's omnipotent. He's omnicompetent in His righteousness and mercy and truth. He could say, before David was, I am. He could say, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, which is, which was, which is to come, the Almighty One. That's who He is. Now, the one David calls Lord performs all the functions of deity. He is creator, he is preserver, he is governor, and one day he will be judge of all mankind. And the scriptures tell us that every name must confess. Every heart must worship him. All must fall at his feet. This is what sets Christianity apart from any other religion. They all call upon the name Lord. Jesus is Lord. They bow before Him. They worship Him. They obey Him. So David's Messiah wasn't like Yahweh. He is Yahweh. Lacking nothing that defines God. For He is God in every way. The only true and living God. God incarnate stood right there before them in their presence. And they didn't even realize it. Now this, of course, is what caused the religious leaders to charge Him with blasphemy. His claim was true, but yet they denied it. As far as David was concerned, the Messiah was utterly Yahweh, and they're rejecting what Christ is saying here. Now second, second major point, the Messiah, the Christ, is both David's son and Lord. How does the New Testament open? What does it open up with? It opens up with the genealogy, right? The genealogy of Christ, of Jesus, born of David. And this affirmation marks the opening of the New Testament. And we see in that four truths. First of all, David's Lord, God, the Son, the second person, the Godhead, took on human body. 
through something through David's lineage from the house of David, Joseph. And we see that this was recognized. Not only do we see it there at the beginning of Matthew, but remember a few months ago when we were looking at the story of blind Bartimaeus and Jesus walked in. What was blind Bartimaeus saying? Jesus, son of David. Blind Bartimaeus, even though he was blind physically, he saw spiritually. He saw who Jesus was and began to cry out to Jesus. We saw the same thing in the triumphant entry. When he came into Jerusalem, they were saying, Hosanna, son of David. So there were those who understood to a certain extent that he was the Messiah. Now we're told that the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. She conceived and gave birth to the Lord Jesus. He was born in the usual way. Not supernaturally. He grew up physically like all the other children. Luther said, Jesus did not flutter like a spirit. He lived among men. He had eyes, ears, mouth, nose, chest, stomach, hands, and feet. Just like you and I do. He took the breast of his mother and nursed. In other words, Jesus, his body, was identical with ours except one thing. It was sinless. But yet he had all the essential aspects as far as we have. Now second, David's Lord took on a reasonable human soul. He had a human psyche. He had a human mind. Subject to the same laws and precepts and memory, logic, and development as we do. Children, where was Jesus on the Sabbath? Where was he? He was in the synagogue. What was he doing in the synagogue? He was listening. He was learning. Just like you're here this morning. You're listening and you're learning. He wasn't born possessing complete body of information. He was born with a mental ability to attain knowledge. That's the reason why the scripture says he grew in wisdom as he grew in statue. He learned. He faced the usual incentives and went through the ordinary process of intellectual development. But as David's Lord, he also possessed supernatural knowledge. He knew the character of men. He saw Nathaniel before he met Nathaniel. He knew the woman at the well there in Samaria had five husbands. He knew long before he got to Bethany that Lazarus had died. He knew inside the mouth of a particular fish that there would be a corn that would be used to pay the temple tax. He came to know as much as his father was pleased to reveal to him, he knew the will of his father perfectly. In principle, this is no different from us except for this, that Jesus was sinless 
And so his intellect was perfectly attuned to God. He talked with the Lord as himself to the Lord. Now by taking a human brain, he had certain limitations. Of course, there is the infinite measure of mind of God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. But there was a clear limitation to his knowledge as the God-man, which he became. But he was never ignorant of what he should know and what he should do. He knew all that he needed to know, which was his Father's will. Now, if you think about that, that... God sent him as a human being, as the God-man, and the ability that he had, and that he went to the furthest extents of that ability that he gave him, and that if we likewise have the same ability of learning, then why aren't we doing it? Whose fault is it? It's only our own fault. I mean, there's some people that know so much more than we do, and I do. Do I just sit back and say, more? they know so much more, so let them know it. No, what should be our desire? To know as much as they do. I mean, I love to hear men of God proclaim God's Word and love from them, learn from them. As I walk, or slowly jog, more like a walk, that's what I do, I listen to sermons. I hate walking, but the doctor said you got to do it, so I'm doing it. So to kill the monotony of it, I listen to sermons. And I encourage you to do it while you're going to work. Listen to sermons. Again, good sermons, good men, so that you might grow in your knowledge of who Christ is, so that you might grow in your knowledge of who God is, so that you might know what your responsibilities are as far as living the Christian life. You have the potential. Don't sell yourself short. So many times we try to excuse ourselves. Don't do it. We are to be what? Like Christ. We're to be putting off the old and putting on the new and growing in His likeness. Now the third sub-point is David's Lord had all sinless human emotions. I mean, there were times when Jesus was full of joy. He went to a wedding right at the very beginning of His ministry. He shared the joy with His disciples. He rejoiced in being with His Father, in knowing His Father's will, and He rejoiced in company with His friends. But He also knew indignation. When the Pharisees were upset with Him, right at the very beginning of His ministry, when He healed the man whose arm was withered, and then healed the man of his sins, they hardened their hearts against him. And he was angry due to the hardness of their heart. He was upset with his disciples when they would not let the little children come to him. He knew all that they needed to come to him. He also got angry when his father, on two occasions, he showed it by getting very angry in the temple and turning over tables and showing how dissatisfied he was with how his father's house was being treated. But yet at the same time we see that he wept over Jerusalem due to their rejection of him. Fourth sub-point, 
David's Lord entered into our environment where David had his royal palace. There in Jerusalem, he's in the temple. He's in the city of David. And there the Christ, the Messiah, tabernacled. He dwelt among sinful men. He humbled himself. At birth, he came into this room and short into this world, and shortly after, he was placed where? In a feed trough. He was brought into a poor family. Two turtle doves. He was the son of a carpenter and learned his father's trade. We see that he faced temptation and overcame temptation. He lived in a fallen world. He had no permanent place to lay his head because he was constantly on the move for three years. David's Lord had no money even to pay the tax. As I mentioned earlier, he had to get a fish to get a coin to be able to pay the temple tax. He was considered a man who was without learning. That's what he was considered. They looked at Jesus as though he was ignorant, even though he was brilliant. They couldn't stand it. And he mixed with the common people who received him, those whom they called sinners. How dare him eat with those sinners and associate with those sinners? But he came to save sinners. Third major point. The Messiah's throne is at God's right hand. We see that there in verse 36b. When he says, sit at my right hand. Now this speaks of a new phrase phase in his ministry as the Son of God. Of course, from the beginning, he was with God. He possessed all absolute authority. He created all things and he sustains all things. So what's new? Well, it is what he became. In his messianic ministry as David's Lord, he became the God-man. He was incarnate. He possessed all of the abilities that he possessed earlier, but he veiled his glory with flesh. And we know later that he ascended into heaven. As the God-man, he remains the God-man at the right hand of the Father. And after completing his work of salvation, he sat down at his Father's right hand. The Father has bestowed upon him, after perfect obedience, his perfect righteousness, that perfect righteousness which he accomplished for you and me because we are unrighteous, and that righteousness that he gives to us, which is above every name. He is the Lamb of God, and He is the only one worthy to open the book God has planned and decreed. He must have all authority over everything if He is the Son of God. And there is no area of life which He's not over, which He is not governed, which He is not ruling. He is sovereign, and He watches over everything. You know, I thought about that yesterday. I was going down the street. Well, my wife first called me after she'd left the house, and she said, Bernard's out on Raymond Road. So I got in my truck real quick. Some of y'all don't know Bernard. If you've ever seen this African man with a beard and wild hair walking alongside the road, that's probably Bernard. 
For 20 years at least, Bernard has been walking alongside a road. He used to come to our church when we were over on um, campus of RTS. So I drive up there quick to find Bernard, and there he is. He gets in the truck, and, and the reason I'm saying this is because if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God, you ought to just follow the life of Bernard. I don't know how he's alive today. I'm serious. He walks everywhere. One day I, I was asking him, and I said something about New Orleans. And he said, Long Bridge. I said, Bernard, you didn't go down to New Orleans. Long Bridge. <laughs> I don't know. He knows there's a long bridge in New Orleans. And he walks most of the time. Somebody might have carried him. But he walks. I, it wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past him, though. Because he walks for days. Anyway... It shows the sovereignty of God of watching over those who can't take care of himself. God has been watching over Bernard ever since something happened to him. They, uh, matter of fact, Matt uh, McDonald was talking to someone that knew him. said he used to be a brilliant student in school. So something happened. We don't know what happened. A uh, stroke or something to put him in the shape he's in. But God takes care of those kind of people. But he watches over everyone. And Jesus Christ is the one watching over us and taking care of us. Yahweh says that David's curios sit at my right hand. For the great work of redemption that you have accomplished in redemption is now to be applied to a countless number of people. A countless number of sinners are going to come because of the work of redemption that you have accomplished. For Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not stand against it. Why? Because he is Lord and he rules. And that picture there in Revelation of the Lamb sitting at the center of the throne, exactly where we would expect to see the Father. Jesus Christ is the centerpiece. All eyes are on him. Every form of existence is enthroned with Him in His glory. The archangels cannot take their eyes off of Him. The seraphim are overwhelmed with Him. The innumerable ranks of angels adore Him by praising Him with constant hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Because He is worthy. Now by the Holy Spirit, He gives eternal life. To all those whom God has given him. God has promised him a seed. And we see that it began there at Pentecost. There in the royal city of David, the Lord began to pour out the Holy Spirit upon the church. And it continues up till today. Now some convey the idea that the gospel is ineffective. That... We need to do something to make the gospel more attractive. We need to update ideas so that people will get saved. But they forget that Jesus Christ is the head of the church and can move heaven and earth for the sake of the gospel. We must never forget that. No matter how it may be dark in our day and time, no matter how wicked This nation may become. We need to remember that Jesus Christ still reigns. And it's our duty to simply go and take the gospel to that nation. 
No place can keep the gospel from accomplishing what God determines for it to accomplish. Why do these nations seek to keep missionaries out of their countries? What are they afraid of? I mean, if their religion is such a great and true religion, then why in the world are they afraid of Christianity? Why do they close the doors to Christianity if their religion is so great? You know the answer to that. I don't have to get David Seals, who's worked in missions for 30 years, to come up here and explain that to us. He knows as well as you know. Because their religion isn't a true religion. There's only one true religion, and that is Christianity, who Christ is the author of. And throughout history, the wicked have tried to destroy the kingdom of God, and they have failed time and time again. They have killed Christians with the sword, but the blood of the martyrs is the fertilizer of the gospel. When you kill a Christian, what happens? Many pop up in their place. They say that's taking place right now in China. The only reason why we don't know about it is because the government tries to quest it. But yet it's getting out. It's saying by the year, I think it's 2040, that there will be more Christians in China than the rest of the world, the entire world. Well, praise God. I hope that's true. Maybe they'll start sending missionaries here to America. We need them. The gospel is spreading. And the gospel will succeed. As Paul says in Philippians 2, 10 and 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, and those in heaven and those on earth, of those under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Satan is no longer able to keep the Gentiles blind. They are his inheritance. Jesus' inheritance. They belong to Jesus. And He has defeated Satan and He is able to raise up those who are spiritually dead to walk in newness of life. And He will have a host of people that no man can count. That's what the Scriptures tell us. He will have a host of people that no one is able to count And He will take us to that place where there will be no more sin, no more sorrow, no more crying. A place where sovereign love reigns forever and ever. And we will be with Him and we will be like Him, the Scripture tells us. We will be like Him in perfect holiness. Filled with everlasting love, joy, and praise. There's nothing on this earth that compare to that. Nothing on this earth that can even begin to compare to what's in store for us. That's the reason why Paul wanted to go on. He didn't want to stay here on this earth. He wanted to go on. And there's some times that I want to go on. And I hope there's some times that you want to go on. Especially when you focus your attention on who Christ is and what Christ has accomplished and the amazing grace of God. We don't understand it all yet. We don't know it all yet. 
We haven't experienced it all yet. We are merely heading to the end of the beginning. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're merely heading to the end of the beginning. Eyes have not seen, ears have not heard what's in store for us. Finally, I knew some of you were waiting for that. God says that David's Lord and Savior to us, I am going to put your enemy under your feet. There in verse 36. Now God does not do this out of malice. But for the sake of justice. He doesn't rejoice in human misery. Because he's not like us. He doesn't seek to find fulfillment in in revenge as man does. But he does this simply to honor the name of Jesus Christ. He did not spare his son from death of the cross, but he sent him to save sinners. But all, all who reject him perish because of their own choosing. The gospel is extended. The gospel is offered. And they choose to remain in their sin. No excuse. No excuse whatsoever. They're like those in the parable in Luke 19, 14, who say, we will not have this man reign over us. Because of the hardness of their heart. And then what does this parable say later in verse 27? Bring here those enemies of mine. Who did not want me to reign over them. And slay them before me. See that's what happens to the ones that are enemies of God. That's what happens to those who reject Jesus Christ. I mean why would anyone... Make Jesus Christ do this to them. Why would they perish? Why would they be the footstool when they can sit with Him on the throne? The claims of justice require condemnation. And Jesus' death proves this. God did not spare His only Son. He sent Him to Calvary. He sent Him to Golgotha. And it demonstrates... What hell deserves. How horrible hell is. And we have to realize that Jesus was the strongest preacher on hell. He preached a whole lot more on hell than he did on heaven. No one spoke more clearly than Jesus himself. And he was constantly warning the people to repent and believe. And all who do not repent will hear those terrible words, depart from me. Depart into everlasting darkness, into everlasting hell, prepared for Satan and his demons. But all who hear the words, come blessed people, 
will enter into paradise with him. Will you be with him? Or will you be the footstool of Christ? Will you be sitting on a throne with him? Or will you continue to refuse him and suffer an everlasting damnation? I'll be as honest as I can. You have no right to refuse the deliverance offered. Why would you refuse that which is offered? Only a fool would do such a thing. Why would anyone choose to be the footstool of Christ? If that's your destination, you are there because you trample the blood of Christ underfoot. You reject the grace offered to you. You reject Him as the Savior. You may say, I've been such a terrible sinner. I hate myself. I deserve to go to hell. I say to you, don't choose that destiny. Seek Christ because He came to save terrible sinners. Paul said that He was the worst of all sinners. That's who Christ came to save. He invites sinners to come. He invites sinners to come to Him today. Own Him as your Savior. Own Him as your Lord. Come, enter into His everlasting love. Don't reject Him. Let us pray. how we thank you for such a great Savior, for such a great Christ, a great Messiah, who is able to save his people from their sins. How we pray, Father, that sinners would look to Christ today and be saved. How we pray that Christians would look to Christ for the strength that they need so that they might live in this dark world and be His witnesses, be His ambassadors of Christ, to tell others about Christ and to live a holy life before them. This we pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.